John 7. Go to verse uh, 25 in John chapter number 7. We left off at verse 24 last week. Uh, I will not recap all of that for sake of time, but we're going to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture. We're going to read it, and then we'll just kind of talk about it as a whole uh, here over the next, I guess, half hour or so. So look at John 7, verse number 25. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. So hang with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, look at the person next to you. They probably have a Bible. If neither of that works, then there is, uh, the verses are on an outline in your bulletin. So we're going to pick it up in verse number 25. It says, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo... He speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. So here these people uh, know that the rulers wanted to kill Jesus, and Jesus stands up boldly at the Feast of Tabernacles and starts preaching, more or less. And they say, why aren't they saying anything? Why aren't they doing anything? Did they change their mind? Do they think that he's the Messiah now? They have this assumption that's a wrong assumption. We're not going to know where the Messiah came from, but we know where he came from, which is, which is actually wrong. But there's kind of this speculation there. Verse 28, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and you know whence I am. And I'm not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. So Jesus stands up and says, look, you, you know me, you know I'm from the Galilee, but I'm actually from the Father, and, and you don't really know this. And it says that they, they want to take him, but it's not time. His hour is his death, and it's not time for that. And many of the people, verse 31, believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So here's this contrast. They, we don't believe these people. What more do you expect from the Messiah? What more, what more can we get from him? We, we do believe. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and, and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, yet a little while I'm with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And whither I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, you shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. So Jesus, we know, he's referencing going back to the Father in heaven, but they're thinking, where are you going? We don't understand. This is a game of seek and find. We'll definitely find you. Like, how is this going to work out? Verse 37, this really is the centerpiece of the whole chapter. In the last day, the great day of the feast, so remember, all this talk thus far has been the middle of the feast. We learned that last week, that this is the middle of the feast. So in between verses 36 and 37, a couple days go by. Now it's the last day of the week, the last day of the feast. And Jesus stood and cried so loudly, boldly proclaimed, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is a prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David out of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. You see the contrast here. 
And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Verse 45, then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So remember, they sent the officers to arrest Jesus previously. We just read that. Now they come back, and here's what they say. The officers are asked of the rulers, why have ye not brought him? You're empty-handed. Where's Jesus? The officers answered and said, never man spake like this man. Then answered the Pharisees, are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who know not the law, they're cursed. Nicodemus saith unto him, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. So this is the ruler, Nicodemus, from John 3. Doth doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Guys, we should hear him out, right? Let's listen to him, hear him out. Trying to be on Jesus' side kind of remotely. Verse 52, they mock him. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went into his own house. We're going to pray, we're going to have one more song, and then we're going to begin to understand this. And I've broken down this whole text into kind of two big points that I'm calling the trilemma and the tributary. Neither of this, you probably know what they mean right now, but you will as we, as we unpack this. Verse 11 of John 7 tells us that there are people searching for Jesus, that they wanted to kill him, and they're looking for him. Where is he? Where can we find him? But really, in this whole passage, there's a more fundamental search for Jesus than what's happening in verse 11. If, if you're not careful, you can read this text and almost think like there's no continuity. It just keeps bouncing back and forth all over the place between these divergent opinions of Jesus. And really that, that lack of continuity is the continuity. The chapter is meant to teach you that everyone had a theory about who Jesus was. That his brothers and, uh, and some others in verse number 12 basically had this good man theory. That, you know, he's, he's a good guy, but we're not going to believe that, that he's God. Some of them in verse 40 and verse 52 say he's a prophet. In verse 12 and 47, they say that he's a deceiver of the people. In verse 20, they say that he's demon-possessed or that he's crazy. Jesus, you say we want to kill you. You have a demon. You're crazy. You're off your rocker. Verse 31 and 41 indicate that there are people that believe and say that he is the Christ. So why is it that through this whole chapter, 53 verses, Jesus is so hotly debated It's because you have on one hand this man who has teaching with overwhelming wisdom. You have this character that almost has attractive beauty and this magnetic power. And you also have just a display of power miracles. But on the other hand, you have these claims from Jesus that are audacious. And he's claiming that that he is God and that he's, he's from God. And you find these people trying to reconcile these, and for a thinking mind, it's a bit of a quandary. What's interesting, though, is that the theories that exist about Jesus in John 7 really are basically the same theories that exist about Jesus today. For many centuries, they continue to be the same. There's the the good man option, and that really is an impossible option that we'll show in a moment. Then there's the deceiver or the crazy kind of option that is a little bit more improbable, And then there's Christ, which is almost an inescapable option. There's an old Scottish minister named Rabbi Duncan, and it's kind of a nickname for him. But he said this, he said, Christ is either deceived humankind by a conscious fraud. So he's a deceiver and he's wicked and he knew what he was doing and he just led people astray. Or himself was diluted, so he's crazy, or was divine. There's no getting out of that trilemma. 
And I love that word trilemma, not dilemma, two options, but trilemma, three options. There's, there's four theories here, but one of them is an impossible theory that we can quickly cross off the list that leaves you with three options, a trilemma for who and what is Jesus Christ. So let's cover the impossible one first, because be, we'll make quick work of that. The impossible one is the good man. He's just a prophet. He's just a sage. He just has some good teaching and he's a good man. Now, why do we say this is impossible? Why does Rabbi Duncan leave that out of his trilemma? And the reason is because if you couple good man and just prophet with the claims of Jesus, it really doesn't square. It's not a possibility because he claimed that he was God. You're not going to claim that you're God and just be a good man. You're either lying that you're God or you're true that you're God. Either way, you're more or less than a good man. If you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus overtly and kind of subtly suggests that he is God. So, for example, an overt one would be at Jesus' trial before his crucifixion that morning. They ask him, are you the Christ? Point blank. And Jesus said, you said it. And then more or less he says, and on the last day, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge all nations and all people, and everyone's giving an account to me. And they rip their clothes and they scream and they say, we don't need any witnesses. Look, this is blasphemy. He just said that he was God. So he overtly claims it, but he subtly, if you read through the gospels all the time, says these things almost in passing. And he doesn't even dwell on them. He doesn't even like stop to talk about them, but just says, I'm God more or less. For example, Matthew 23, Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem that I keep sending you prophets and wise men and you keep killing them. Now he doesn't stop for a second. He just brushes past the fact that the prophets and the wise men of the ages and to come are his couriers and and he sends them. Like they're his agents running to and from, and he's the great power in the universe directing the wise men and the prophets. And I'm not a prophet pointing to God. I'm the God that all the prophets and sages and wise men have pointed to. And he just almost just runs right past it. Jesus is constantly making incredible demands for allegiance. Jesus says that if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. And there's a big question, what does that mean? Does that, he's wanting to, he really wants me to hate my father and mother? What it means is that any devotion outside of devotion to me should be so small and minuscule in comparison to your devotion to me that it should almost seem like hatred. And if your mother and father are against you following me, you should, in a heartbeat, choose me over your own family of origin and over your own mother and father that brought you into the world and cared for you. That your devotion to me should so far outweigh your devotion to your own parents that it should almost seem like hatred. He says, lose me and you'll lose everything else. Try to keep your life. Try to run it yourself and don't surrender it to me and see if you don't lose it. But surrender everything to me and see if you find it. Jesus says, I'm worth so much that if there's something standing in the way of your allegiance or your following me, get rid of it. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Anything that prohibits you from following me is not worth it. Now, can we, let's just be honest for a moment. Name me one person outside of Jesus Christ who ever said anything like that, that we don't think they're crazy. Right? We say you're a megalomaniac, you're nuts, 
I want nothing to do with you. You're a tyrant. You're going to, if I was willing to give you any sort of allegiance close to that, you would take that and use that for a wicked agenda. No one has ever handled that sort of allegiance in, in, in a good way. We run from that stuff. Yet here is Jesus thousands of years later, all of his followers later still making claims like that. You can't take a middle ground with that stuff. You don't get to shift it in the neutral and say, you know what, he's a good man. I'll just, I like his teaching. That was real winsome. Ooh, that was wise. I like that, but I'm just going to completely ignore him making these audacious claims of deity. You can't do it. You, you have to cross off the list. It doesn't work. So you're left with a trilemma. Two of them are very improbable. One of them I think is inescapable. Here's the improbable ones, deceiver and lunatic. They put it in the text here that you deceive people. They put it in the text here as you have a devil. Both are saying you fool people. Deceiver meaning you fool people and you know you're fooling them and you're just leading them on and you're wicked. Lunatic meaning you fool people and you also fooled yourself and your motives may be pure, but nevertheless you're crazy. Now, both of those don't work, and there's a, th- there's a problem with that theory, and the problem is it doesn't square with what you know about Jesus' life. And this text even teaches us this. They send the guards to arrest Jesus, and they tell them he's a deceiver. When they come back, they come back empty-handed, and they say, look, he deceived you too. This deceiver, what is he doing? And the guards more or less say to them, you sent us to arrest a crazy man, and it don't hold water. Never a man spake like this man. His teaching is sublime. You're saying that he's a deceiver, but it does not work, and we can't believe that. G.K. Chesterton, the old English writer, put it this way. He said, if you wandered through your yard and you found a key on the ground, and you picked up that key and said, huh, where'd that come from? Maybe it fits something in my house. And you started walking to your deadbolt and your front door and to your other door and the padlock on your shed, and it opened the padlock on your shed. Would you say... What a coincidence that this key that's random and not even intended for that lock fit that lock and opened it up. Or would you say, no, a locksmith or a manufacturer made the lock and made the key and made them to fit together and the locksmith made the key. You would naturally conclude that those were made to go together. It's not just happenstance. He took that illustration and said, when you come to the teaching of Jesus, you have Jesus teaching in a a pre-modern oriental society thousands of years ago. And century after century after century, culture after culture after culture, his teaching has been universally valid. In, the, in the, some of the greatest minds and thinkers and most brilliant people have found his teaching fulfilling and satisfying. In every culture, every slice of time, people found it satisfying. Why is it that the teaching of Jesus is universally valid? Why is it that you read the Sermon on the Mount in any language and everybody says, that blowed my mind. I don't know what just happened there, but that is amazing. I would have never thought of that. Why is it? Is it that he was crazy and he just happened to spout out some stuff that connected with everybody? Or is it that he had the key to the human heart and he knew it and he said, I made you, I designed the heart, I know how life is best lived, I know what leads to human flourishing, let me tell you, here's the key, and every, every slice of time, every culture has found it satisfying. 
What's the more logical option? The more logical option is that he's not crazy. He's not a lunatic. He's not just deceiving people and spouting things off. If he is, how did he fool the people in close to him? Why is it that his stepbrothers come to faith in him? Why is it that his mother believes on him? Why is it that his disciples who are there with him day in and day out and living with him believe on him? Not just believe, but give their lives for him. Who's, who would be the least likely to believe that you were God in the flesh if you made that claim? You and I both know your spouse, your adult children, the people that spend the most time with you. Because the closer you get to somebody, the more you realize there's a curtain and you see behind that curtain and there's a lot of foibles, there's a lot of inconsistencies, there's a lot of issues in my life and in yours. And we all know it. But the people who live with Jesus, there's, there is no whistleblower who steps up and says, time out, it's all a fraud. No, I saw it. I saw, I saw how crazy he was. I saw when he dabbled with that. I said, no one ever does that. The people closest to him, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's improbable to say that he's a deceiver or that he's a lunatic. You find in Jesus these virtues that are combined that inspire us, that make us want to be like Jesus. There's tenderness but that's without any weakness. There's strength, but that's without any harshness. There's humility, but there's no lack of confidence. There's holiness, an unbending conviction, but not a lack of approachability. There's tremendous courage with the utmost sensitivity and tenderness of spirit. You have, you have this man that we look at, God in the flesh, and say, I, I, that makes it, I want to aspire to be that. I want to be more like him. So if you have that, you're left with an inescapable option. You're left with what he said is true, that I am God in the flesh. As, as audacious as that is to say, I was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. I am, I'm not just a human conceived by the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm God in the flesh, deity here in front of you, living a perfect life, going to atone for the sins of the world. That's an audacious claim. It almost sounds insane. But all of the alternatives are more insane. Christianity has never struggled to admit that those truth claims are bold and are in your face and are, they're, they're so strong and, and at first glance seem unbelievable. How could this be? It, it, it almost doesn't make sense. But Christianity has also never struggled to admit that any alternative to that makes less sense. That you put the evidence on the stand, you, you put the witnesses up, you weigh it all out, that that is where you're left, that's where you're led to. The inescapable conclusion is that what Jesus said is true. Now, what this means is, there's a lot of implications, could be a whole nother sermon, but I'll just give you my favorite one that probably every three months I try to give to you because you need to hear it a lot. What this means is that if that's true, that Jesus, what he said is true, God in the flesh, then accepting Jesus, him being your savior, is an all or nothing proposition. You don't get to be lukewarm with Jesus. You don't get to be half and half. I'll put it this way. If you invited me over for dinner tomorrow night and I came to your, your house, I knocked on the door and you said, come in, Mark, but stay out lichens. I would be a little bit confused and I would look at you and say, I, I, it doesn't work that way. Like I'm Mark and lichens both together. We're the same person. So either the whole me is gonna come in or the whole me is gonna stay out 
Mark can't come in and like him stay out. There are a lot of churchgoers that more or less say, come in, Jesus, stay out, king. Right? Come in, free ticket to heaven, stay out, Lord. And if you've done that, you've done something that you cannot do. It's impossible. You cannot say, oh, I'll take that and I'll, I'll pick that and I like that and I like what Jesus says there and I, ooh, that sounds good to me, but ah, I don't like that and those truth claims and nope, I'm not going to give you authority. I'm not going to give you control. It's all or nothing. This is why the prophecy concerning Jesus and Luke when he was born was that this child is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel. Rise or fall, one or the other, all or nothing. He's... He's a block. You're either going to build your life on him or you're going to stub your toe on him. It's not going to be any middle ground there. And if, if I used to think as I approached this series and, and looking at John, I thought, you know what? The book of John is given for evangelism. That's what he tells us at the end of the book. These things have I written unto you that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I used to think, you know what, this is going to be good. We can invite our friends or our neighbors or those that are seeking, those that have questions. We can dialogue like this and help them see that Jesus is the logical confu- conclusion, that, that it'll be used for this. And I believe that it, it is and it will be. But the more that I study John, the more I'm convinced that perhaps this book of the Bible and this series that we're teaching and preaching through is not really meant to evangelize the guests, but it's, it's meant to evangelize the churchgoer. There's a good chance that there's a lot of people that are on the membership role of Harvest that need to say, I want Jesus and the King. That I've been trying to hedge my bets and I've been trying to go middle ground here. And you may have prayed a prayer at VBS and you may have come to church a long time. You may have done all the religious rigmarole. I don't know. But there's a lot of people that, that when left with the inescapable conclusion, can get there mentally, but have not gotten there and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ truly and taken the real Jesus that you've got a figment of your imagination. So there's a trilemma and you have to solve it. You, you, have, to know, you have to answer the question, is he crazy? Is he deceiving people? Or is he the Christ? There is no middle ground. There is no, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find somewhere in between those. That there's not an option. And if you've come to the conclusion that you know what, what he said is true, have you asked him, come in Jesus, stay out king? Because you can't do that. It doesn't work. Secondly, and we're going to switch gears here, is the tributary. The centerpiece of this whole text, and you'll see why in a moment, is verses 37, 38, and 39. This is the big idea that most of this text is pushing towards. Here are these people who are at the feast looking to kill him. Jesus knows this. And Jesus is going to stand up, and it says that he cries out. What does that mean? That he, you know, he, he wept? If you come to me... No, it means that he yelled, he cried, powerfully, boldly, with these people wanting to headhunt him. So what message would be so important that Jesus would risk his life to speak it boldly? And here it is. John 7, verse 37. In the last day... The great day of the feast. So here's, everything's coming to its pinnacle. The most people, the most uh, uh, ears to listen. Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's very similar to John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. That I have, I have everlasting life. I have the water that you'll never thirst again. And if you drink of me, there'll be a wellspring springing up inside of you. Very similar. But then verse 39 is going to interpret the metaphor. Because what does that mean? I got water flowing out my belly. 
that's weird. Like, what is, is this pregnancy? What are you talking about? Well, verse 39 tells us, but this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me give you a little bit of context and we're going to answer three questions to help us understand this. Contextually, this makes complete sense. The Feast of the Tabernacles was uh, about a week-long feast. This was meant to reminisce and remember and reflect on the goodness of God and the power of God as God provided for his people as they wandered around the wilderness. We talked last week about how they would set up tabernacles or booths or tents. They would dwell in those for a week. To remember, we hiked around in our tents and God took care of us and God provided for us. But another one of the things they did on a daily basis was a priest would go to the Pool of Siloam, would take a golden pitcher and would dip out of the Pool of Siloam a a pitcher of water. As he did this, the people would surround him. There'd be a lot of commotion. And they would, they would sing. They would chant different psalms. They would actually typically sing Isaiah 12. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. They would sing this. The priests would get this and they would follow him. This big entourage would follow him back to the temple. They would sing the Hallel Psalms as they went up into the temple. And there the priest would take that water and he would pour it out at the temple, meant to be a depiction of God in the desert when Moses struck the rock, that water flowed out of that and water was provided for them and God quenched their thirst and gave them the the substance of life that they needed, that he provided for them. And this was meant to depict and recollect that episode in the wilderness wanderings. And Jesus leverages this He stands up. On the last day, they would circle the altar seven times. They would also include another pitcher of wine, and they would pour them out together. It was said of the Jewish people that if you could get close enough to see on that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest pouring out the water and the wine together, that that would be the pinnacle of your life. That would be the greatest, most joyful moment that you could ever have if you could get close enough to observe and watch that. Jesus stands up knowing this is happening on this last great day of the feast and says to them, I will make you a tributary. I will make water flow from you. Just as it flowed out of the rock in the desert, I will make that you water flowing through you. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this? How do we get this? And how does this affect us? So what is this? What is he talking about? Well, verse 39 told us it's the Spirit of God. Okay, What does that mean? You're talking about receiving the Spirit of God and this not given yet. When is it going to be given when he's glorified? What are you talking about here? So Jesus is talking about really the essence of Christianity. If if I was to ask you, what is Christianity really? And I gave you a multiple choice. Is Christianity a pattern of ethical behavior? Is Christianity right doctrine? Is Christianity a social vision for the world? That here's how we should treat each other and care for each other. And here's what we should do with widows. And is it that? Or is it direct experience with the presence of God? Now, it's all of those things. It's all of those things. But primarily, it is direct access in experiencing the presence of God. It's a relationship is what it's meant to be. Yes, heaven is included. Yes, there's uh, conviction. Yes, there's a lot of things, but primarily it's the presence of God. His Holy Spirit penetrating you, direct, immediate connection to the substance and the stuff of God. So you can't underestimate what Jesus is talking about here. And you have to ask, okay, do we know what he's talking about? Do we know, we'll call it the gift of the Spirit. 
He's referencing giving this. What does this mean? So let me back up and clarify a little bit. In the Old Testament, the presence of God and the Spirit of God are virtually synonymous. You'll find lots of instances where the verbiage goes something like this. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and X, Y, and Z happened. That the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and he's able to do these mighty acts. Why? Because God is with him, infusing him, charging him there. He's experiencing the presence of God. David would write in Psalm 51, that great penitential psalm, and he uses parallelism here. Cast me not away from thy presence, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me. Putting the two together. So this is seen this way. And, and you might naturally think, and this is a logical question, well, pastor, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't his presence everywhere? So how is Jesus saying we're going to get the Spirit of God or the presence of God? Isn't God already present? Now, if you think of the presence of God as a gas that is let go and distributed equally amongst the room, right? And just kind of the molecules just spread out, then that would be a natural question and this would not make sense. But if you think of God as a, as a person, not a human being, but a person with personhood, then this makes sense that his presence can be experienced in greater levels. Let me illustrate. Right now we're live streaming the service. There are a number of people that maybe are members of the church and they're traveling or people that wanted to check out Harvest but didn't want to drive here the first time and they're, and they're watching me right now or people that are home with their sick kids. So live stream, howdy, glad you're here. Uh, welcome to church this morning. Is the live stream, are they experiencing my presence right now? To a degree they are. Are they experiencing it to the same degree that you are? They are not because there's something about being in person. And live stream, if you live stream every week, get here, okay? It's not the same. You need to be here in person. Now, you are experiencing this in person. But if you come to me afterwards and you shake my hand and we look each other face to face, mano y mano, will you experience my presence to a greater degree in that instance than you are right now in this instance? Yes. My children, my wife, will experience my presence today if I'm not absent-minded. They'll experience my presence to a greater degree. As I wrestle with them and eat with them and play on the trampoline and those sorts of things, they'll get a greater degree of that, right? So it's not unusual, it's not, it's not weird to say that, you know what, God is present everywhere, but he's talking about giving us direct access to the presence of God, that those two, when you think of God in personhood, it, it makes sense completely. So let me give you an example. The Bible says that Moses was able to see God, like they able to see his face. But it also says he never saw God face to face, which seemed contradictory, honestly. What does that mean? What it means is that Moses got a greater level of the presence of God than anyone else of the children of Israel got. And that manifested itself physically. He came down the mountain and he was glowing. They put a veil over that sucker because we can't sleep at night. You are a nightlight, man. This is crazy. Moses got access to something that, that others did not have access to. But yet he didn't get it fully. One, one preacher put it as Moses, uh, he didn't get to go downtown with the presence of God. He just got the suburbs. That he, he got a portion of this. But even then, Moses wanted more. He wanted to see God face to face. He, he craved that. David would have craved this. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That The Old Testament saints longed for this, to be, to be close to God. And what Jesus is promising here in this text is that you are going to get the stuff of God, the presence of God. Like other people didn't get it. 
access to God, His presence and His power, to be able to commune with Him, to talk with Him, to pray with Him, to go to Him, that, that you're going to get this via the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I would like for you to be half as convicted about this this morning as I am. Because if I'm, if I'm honest, I see that and I see the mediocrity that grips my Christian life many times. I see that I'm paralyzed by my problems and my fears and my worries. I see that I make excuses for these tiny expectations of God all the time, which runs contrary to this, to experiencing the presence of God. So, so what is this? This is Jesus saying, you're going to get what the Old Testament saints craved, what they longed for, what some of them got to some degree, but this was, this was not pervasive amongst the children of Israel, that you are going to get the Spirit of God upon you. You are going to get the stuff of God. Okay, pastor, how do we get this? According to this, if that's what we get, like that sounds a little bit mystical, that sounds experiential. We're Baptists. We don't go by our emotions, right? We're, we're not that experiential, comparatively speaking. How, how do I get this? Well, there's two things the text says. Glorification and thirst. Those two things had to happen. It's very clear. I'll start with glorification. The end of verse 39 says, the Holy Ghost was not yet given. He's talking about giving it, but it's not yet given. Why? Because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, what does it mean that Jesus isn't glorified? The glorification of Jesus, the glory of Jesus is, is his death. You can see that very clearly, especially in John. I encourage you, I won't read it for sake of time. John 17, 1 through 5. Go read that where Jesus says, the former glory I had, the former glory I want, through my death you're going to glorify me. That he's speaking of his death, that I'm going to die for you, I'm going to procure for you everlasting life, I'm going to get for you the water, the everlasting life that you're so thirsty for, and I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit of God. I'm going to make his presence accessible in your life. So that's important to know that this hinges on the glorification and the death of Jesus. Let me modernize this for you. Jesus doesn't turn us on to little Indiana Joneses and sends us on a quest for the fountain of youth. It's a flimsy illustration, I admit, but you'll get it. The gospel isn't, hey, you be Indiana Jones. Here's your map. Take your map. There's where the treasure is. There's going to be many things you have to conquer. There's going to be many pitfalls you're going to have to avoid. There's going to be many tests that you have to overcome. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be tough. But if you have the right luck and the right courage and the right gumption and you stick to it, eventually you'll get the treasure at the end of the treasure map and you can have the fountain of youth. That's not how it works. The gospel really, and more or less what this is saying, is that Jesus is your Indiana Jones, right? He's gone through the trials. He's gone through the tests. He's gone through the tribulation. He's conquered everything that needs to be conquered. He has procured for you the water that you need to flow through you. And you have to come to him and say, you know what? It's not, it's not my courage. It's not my luck. It's not my ability. It's not, what I, it's not what I do in my gumption. It's that you have done this through your glorification and your death. So I come to you and I need to receive from you what you have, what you already got. Galatians tells us, Paul asks this question. He's almost befuddled. He asked the people of Galatia, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And the, the answer is, it's not works of the law, it's, it's hearing and faith. And he says to them, then if you got it, are you foolish? You've begun in the Spirit? Have you turned back to the works now? What does Paul say? How did you get the Spirit? By what you did? No. 
by your faith. By putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for what he did. So, the glorification had to happen. That has happened. At this moment in John 7, it was future. Now it's past. It's done. What else has to happen? Thirst. You have to be thirsty. This is a theme that runs all through the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible basically ends with this. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, there's five verses to follow Revelation 22, verse 17. But the verse goes like this, kind of the the culmination of all of Scripture. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let him that heareth say, Come, let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What's that saying? You have to be thirsty. Okay, what's thirsty mean? Not moral, but thirsty. There's a a big difference. A thirsty person is someone who does not have what they need, but rather they have the absence of something. A thirsty person is someone who recognizes, I need that for life, and I don't got that, so I need to get that. So how do I get that? Not through me, it's through Jesus, right? Uh, this, This is a clear indication of humility, It's a clear indication of of recognizing that all you need when you come to Jesus is nothing, but some people don't got nothing. That you have have to come and say, I don't have what I need. I'm thirsty. Jesus doesn't say, go and drink. He says, come. I've got it. Receive from me. I will give to you. There has to be humility. But moral is this idea of, you know what? I got what I need. I'll work my way. I'll earn my way. I'll do what it takes. I'll overcome. I'll, I'll put in the effort and then I'll get the water. Then Jesus will give it to me. No, 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 no. He died and was glorified so that you can come thirsty. So that you can come with humility and knowing that you don't have to do anything. So what is it? It's the presence of God. It's the spirit of God, the power of God given to us in a way that Old Testament saints did not have. How do we get this? Jesus had to die for it and we have to come humbly with thirst. How does this affect us? So, okay, pastor, what does that mean? I've been around church a while. I've talked to a lot of people, different denominations. What does that mean if I have the Spirit of God and there's, there's water flowing from my belly? Does that mean I'm going to speak in tongues? Does that mean I have to have an experience? Does that mean I'm going to see a special light? Does that, what does that mean? How do I know if I have that? That sounds wonderful, but it also sounds like different than my ordinary life where I struggle with stuff all the time. Here's what it means. I, I don't have time to, this is included but not limited to, okay? So there's a lot more that we're going to say as we get to John 15 and 16 and 17, but I'll just give you a teaser. Here's what that means. If you've received Jesus, come thirsty, and you have the Spirit of God as he promised you would have, it means that you're going to have a spotlight on Jesus, first of all. The, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to spotlight Jesus, is to point out and magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. John 16 tells us that when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth and he's going to speak of things to come and he'll glorify me. The spirit of God is a preacher of Jesus. If you've ever been in a room where you had maybe a play or something, it was dark and they turned on a spotlight, you know when it was dark, you could see maybe forms and figures of people kind of floating around. But as soon as that spotlight hits, All you see is that person that's front and center. You can't even see the spotlight itself if you try to look at it. All you see is that person. And the Spirit of God is meant to spotlight Jesus Christ and and make him stand out and make him pop in your heart and in your life. 
the way you can tell, one of the ways you can tell the Spirit of God has been given to you is if Jesus Christ is being magnified in your heart and mind and life day after day, week after week, month after month. Maybe not perfectly or, or completely consistently, but he'll be magnified and become larger to you. Here's an example of that, Romans 5. We have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which was given unto us. Sounds cool, right? The love of God made manifest, illuminating our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Well, how did the Holy Ghost do that? Well, when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would one even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You follow the progression? I know I'm going deep, and you've had three sermons worth of content already. I know, but hang with me for three, four more minutes. We'll be done. Maybe five. <laughs> you follow the progression? The love of God is made manifest to me by the Spirit. How? Well, let me show you the death of Jesus Christ and that God proved his love for you while Christ died for you. What's he doing? Spotlighting Jesus to show you the love of God so that becomes real and manifest in your heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. At least one of the things he does is he spotlights Jesus. If there's a movement that has the the Spirit as a figurehead, that maybe they have a dove as a symbol and they're constantly talking about the Spirit, praying to the Spirit, worshiping the Spirit, singing to the Spirit, there's something off kilter there. Because the Spirit is a little bit bashful, you could say, and points the the light over to Jesus and says, look at Jesus. It's not to say that you can't pray the Spirit ever or you can't sing a song ever that mentions the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. But if that's that's the focal point, then it's off kilter biblically. The focal point of the Spirit is Jesus, so it always manifests itself in Jesus. Secondly, how does this affect us? I I call it a sensitive nose. So you're going to have a spotlight on Jesus, you're going to have a sensitive nose. Water flowing from us. We're a fountain. We're a tributary. What does water do? Lots of things. One of the things it does is cleanses. The Holy Spirit is a holy spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God has a sensitive nose, is the most clever way I could say it. That he will sniff out little pockets of pride and selfishness and worry and self-pity that are inside of you that you don't even know are there. And he will whittle away at you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ and will do his best to convict you and to show you that's wrong and that's off and that doesn't mesh with a life that's consistent with the gospel and that's not what a follower of Jesus would do. And you, you may not always submit to that conviction, but if, if, you, if you have come to Jesus thirsty and you have received him by faith, you know what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit of God will convict you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then perhaps you need to admit your thirst and come to him. Galatians 5 says, if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Those are opposite. They're water and oil. They don't go hand in hand. The spirit and the lust of the flesh, the spirit will try to identify and get you away from that. Lastly, he's a source of life. I think I have two minutes left if I'm timing myself right. We're told that if you partake of this, if this happens, you become a tributary. You become a fountain. Water flowing out of your belly. From inside out, water coming out of you. What does that mean? It's very simple. Here's a good question to ask yourself. Are you a fountain or are you a drain? Put it that way. Are you life-giving or are you draining? 
Do you enhance people or do you deplete them? Do people feel sucked dry by you or do they feel refreshed by you? Because when you have the Spirit of God, He produces certain fruit in your life, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. Against such there is no law. You come across a person that has that kind of fruit in their life, they do not drain you. They do not deplete you. You want to be around that. You want more of that. There's something magnetic about them. And if you find that, the, that the, you have the Spirit, that He's going to change you from the inside out to be a refreshing and a life-giving person, not someone who's depleting and constantly draining. There's a lot more that I could say, but I'll give you those three just to help you not be so mystical about this this morning. But how do I know if I have the Spirit of God? Is Jesus magnified in your heart and life and mind? Are you, are you able to have conviction over your sin where he's chasing you down and saying that's wrong and that's wrong? Do you find that you're being changed, not perfectly, but you're being changed into someone that, that's, that's more life-giving and more refreshing? That's indication that the Spirit of God you have. You say, I don't have any of that. Right, right, Raggy? Like, you're, you're in trouble. you got to go to Jesus and say, I'm thirsty. Like, there's an issue. I, I've, maybe I've said, come in Jesus, but stay out king. I haven't received him in humility how I should. So, I have a minute left, maybe. There's three categories this morning. Put yourself in one of three categories. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, just because I feel like it. I'm feeling froggy. Okay? Categ- you're going to have to raise your hand when I'm done with this. You don't have to, but I'm going to ask you to, okay? I'm not making you. Category one, I know Jesus. I've wrestled it out. I, I know. I've come to the inescapable conclusion. He is who he said he is. I've said, come in Jesus and come in King. And I've seen the work of the Spirit in my life. I have, I have so far to go, and I wish I was further along. But I can relate. I know that. I know him. Here's what you need to do this morning. You need to rejoice in your salvation, praise the Lord, and say, Holy Spirit of God, I want more of you. I've, I've, I want to be filled with you. I want more of you this morning. Category two is the opposite, where you'd say, you know what? I'd like to know that, but I don't. If I'm honest, I don't. Maybe I'll come to church. Maybe I prayed a lot. Maybe I, I asked Jesus to come to my heart, whatever. But I don't know that. I think I've been trying to get a fictitious Jesus. And I have not truly surrendered. I haven't seen that work in my life. I, I, I honestly can't relate. Then come and say, I'm thirsty. I don't got what I need. Jesus, please, you've conquered. Please give it to me. Category three is maybe your most likely. Category three is, you know what? I have, I've come, I'm thirsty. I've accepted Jesus. I know, I accept him as, as Savior and Lord and I want to give him full control of my life. But I don't feel like a fountain, Pastor. <laughs> I don't feel like there's water of life flowing out from my belly. I don't, I don't feel that way. The Spirit of God is not a gas. It's distributed evenly. He's a person. And you've got to engage in relationship just like you would with any other relationship. If you wanted someone in this room to marry you, what would you do? You'd pursue them. You'd woo them. You'd want to spend time with them. You would want to get to know them and study them and find out what they wanted. You'd want to to concede some things in your life to them and make commitments to them, that, that would be natural, right? You've got to pursue that relationship because it just may be sitting there dormant and dead and you're, and you're not going to feel like a fountain if that's the case. So raise a hand. I'm not even going to make you close your eyes. We're just going to raise our hands right now. Who say, Pastor, category one, that's me. I feel it, refresh, and I, I'm not perfect, but I need more. All right, category two, Pastor, I don't know that I've ever surrendered. I, I think I need to admit I'm thirsty. I think I need to come. I think I need to, I need to accept Jesus and get the Spirit because I don't, I, don't I don't know much about that. I'd like to, but I don't. There? 
Okay? I saw one or two. Category three. Pastor, I know Jesus, but I don't feel like a fountain. Category four, I didn't raise my hand. You still didn't raise your hand. Okay. Then let's pray and let's commit it to him right here, right now. 